You're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriting. My name is Mark Lintemeyer. You are listening right now to composer Sean Beeson's Dr. Evil's Evil Lair of Doom. And yes, it is music written for a video game, as is all the music we're going to be talking about today. We've got sort of an epic orchestral one, and then a multi-layered, very fun one made for an adventure time game, and then a peaceful ambient piece. Sean is a different kind of composer than we've had on the past here. We're going to hear about what equipment he uses, how he puts these songs together, what it's like to work in this niche, and the music is very fun. Now, just to warn you, I'm not sure if it was the sound in the room Sean was recording in, or if he accidentally put reverb on his voice, but his voice sounds like he's in a cave of some sort. Hopefully that won't be too irritating. And here's the interview. I will have played your Dr. Evil's Lair of Doom. Yeah. Which also I saw was a bad guy level. Yes, it is a piece of music for an evil, sinister doctor for a game. And we don't want to spend too much time on that one, but do you write these things just as like a whole piece or as this is something that just needs to be kind of 20 seconds long that's going to be repeated or... Correct. Yeah, it's a piece of game music, so it really is designed to loop and to set an atmosphere and not necessarily do something always really grand and sweeping. Really, the name of the game is to just set the mood and keep the mood going and find this vibe and just ride it as much as you can. And in this case, the piece, it isn't too long. It might only be 60 or 80 seconds and then it loops. But that's perfect for games because of file size requirements and because of the music switching and swapping out. So there's lots of technicalities that kind of direct how long the music should be. And that really kind of is the starting point for creating a piece like that. Well, let's get sort of the simplest of the three main songs we're going to talk about out of the way first. Beyond the Desert, which is a theme and sounds like it could be a theme to a fantasy show on the WB or something. Definitely even has from the ethnic plucky instrument in the background that everything fades to is similar to the Game of Thrones theme I saw. Give us an introduction before we have people hear it. It's only a two minute song, but. Right. So this is a piece of music from an upcoming game called Empires Apart. It's like an old school real time strategy game that is like a medieval setting. They wanted something that was very distinct and they wanted a motif that was very memorable and something that could be easily hummed and kind of would get stuck in your head. They approached me probably like 10 months ago to write a series of pieces that all use this same motif that you hear in this piece. All right, well, it's definitely an earworm. Let's play it for him. Thank you. 
I had been prepping for this whole interview thinking that we would do our third song, Celestial Light, first, which is more developed in certain ways or more personal or, I don't know, orchestrated song. But this one just seems such a great example of using the orchestra. I mean, you've got this theme that's really just one melody. As you said, it's supposed to be the earworm, but then you just develop it and pass it between instruments and now everything is growing and everything, you know. It started off hammering that theme home a lot less. And I put the theme at the beginning. I put that at the beginning and then doodle off in a completely different direction. Just because I think of a theme in a video game, you want to hear that theme, but then it's okay to drift somewhere else because they're going to be browsing the menus. They're going to be setting up a game. They're going to be setting up multiplayer. And I really didn't want to abuse that theme. But then the client, they were like, I really like that theme. Can you put it in more? And so I did. And then they're like, oh, it's great. Can you put it in some more? Well, I sure (laughs) can. So I put it in some more. And then naturally, as I'm orchestrating and arranging the piece, it's like, I can't have that melody played by the same instrument the same way with the same supporting harmony over and over and over and over. I could have, and it would have suited the game and the client would have been happy. But for my own personal taste, I was like, I can't do that. And so I don't want to say the lazy way out, but just the most effective thing to do is to just switch instruments and to reharmonize and to take breaks where you need to, to kind of re-energize the theme with different instrumentation. Well, I really like the overall shape of the thing that, like you say, you, you start the theme in low and then you do retain after that. It sounds like the French horn is going to play the theme again, but it sort of putters off and there's a little this repetitive flute underneath. And then it only comes in in earnest you know, after that. Well, this is still only 35 seconds in with the oboes and the, dr- the rolling drums punctuate that and then crescendo at the end of that. So by the first minute, then you've got the full on orchestra theme with the rolling drums. But then where is it going to go from there? So it's sort of resolves to this slightly quiet, you know, it, it actually adds the last, that time is the first one, it actually adds the last three notes, the da, 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 that you didn't have that earlier. And then you got kind of a lazier version of it with a more constant percussion. What is that at about uh, 118 where it rolls into sort of a rolling vista where you're, there's some kind of percussion under that that's not the rolling. It sounds like it might just be the plucking instrument kind of played with eighth notes. I think in a lot of cases, like I'm more interested in textures and timbres that kind of match the setting of the game and of the style of music. So in that choice, who knows what it could have been? It could have been some kind of a, of a plucked guitar or it could have been some kind of an ethnic instrument, but it just felt like a complementing sound to the piece. And by that point in the piece, I need to start to prepare for the loop. Thing. Because since it's a piece of music that loops, I still write the music linearly. Like, I still think of the piece moving forward as having, like, a trajectory and a direction and a kind of a flow or an energy that it needs to persistently grow. But I also think in the back of my head, i got to give myself enough time to get back to the beginning and not have it feel too abrupt. And sometimes I succeed at that, and sometimes I fail. And in the case of a theme, it's not as noticeable, because a lot of games will have a theme that plays, and it'll get real big, and... It'll just fade out and there will be five seconds of of silence Mm. with some ambient sounds and then the music will come back in. And I think this one, you know, I prepared for the loop, but it isn't as seamless of a loop as as what it could have been. And that was because they said that there would be a break between the loop. They didn't want it to continually loop over and over and over and over, which 
I really appreciate because I think that when you hit people just constantly, it can be fatiguing, especially if it's a motif like this one that is much more simple. And it does consist of such few notes that it's catchy. But the downside is, is that it can get old real quick. Right. I like the way it fades out that you go into the percussion driven Vista version, then it gets loud again and then gives a big spike and then drops off into the, what I referred to as the end of the Game of Thrones theme part where you just have the Eastern sounding percussion. But you also have this quarter note, I guess what xylophone sound that's kind of doing this da da, that's doing this quarter note triplets over the thing. So you had to clarify to me that these are all MIDI instruments that you don't have to go through the trouble of actually scoring this and dragging in. String play. It's just amazing that you can, you know, get this quality. This connotes to me, as I was saying, the Xena or the Hercules legendary journeys theme. I, I don't have either of those clearly in mind, but I'm sure those things from the nineties, they had to actually drag in a real orchestra, but now you're, you're getting really damn high quality sounds. So tell us a little bit about what tools you're using to do this. Right. So a lot of older TV shows, they would have to drag in musicians and, and films and. I guess I shouldn't say dragon musicians. It, it was, it's a pleasure to be able to work with live musicians. And I would love to be able to work with many more live musicians. But usually with games, it's multiple issues that kind of prevent or limit that. And some are just budget, legal concerns, timelines. They just don't have enough time. And so I've really had to learn how to use technology to my advantage, especially because I live in rural Ohio and there's not any recording studios or not any recognized scoring stages within a couple hours of here. There's some that have opened up recently, but 10 years ago, if I wanted to get scoring done that was on par with what you would hear in, in bigger projects, I would have to go to a coast or go to New York or go somewhere where I could track those players. And it just it wasn't feasible because the cost to pay the players was more than what I would even make on these projects. Because it's one sure. composer and potentially 50 symphonic players that we would be hiring. And so when I have worked with live players, it's usually been ones in Europe. The ensembles have been created and the business that they have has been formed specifically to do remote tracking and recording for composers like myself. That could just shoot them something real quick and have them record it. But even then, budget and timeline are constrained. And if you would shoot something to somebody like that, could you just say, okay, here's, here's the audio. Really, I just want the string part there replaced by real strings. Just do that. Or would you actually have to print out something and send them a PDF or whatever? Both. There's a couple companies in Germany that will do that for you. I could send them this piece and they would take just the audio. They would make an arrangement. They would transcribe it, they would print the parts out and record it. And it's not cheap, but it's a turnkey solution. The results, I think, are, are usually pretty good from what I've heard, all the way down to you provide your own scores for them. Mm -hmm. I've done the former before, where I've just handed music off, and it's been a good experience because the orchestrators that they have there know the players, and the engineers know the space that they're recording in. Right. And so instead of me having all these different pieces that I'm pulling together, these are people that are familiar with the environment, with the context of how the music's going to be used, how the players would play it. And I think that the, the overall product just seems much more organic than, say, if I were to try to pull in 
a small chamber string orchestra into my studio or pull in some horn players into my studio and then put everything together. And so technology has really been something that's enabled me to realize my music more quickly and to have it sound really good. And that's kind of been one of the cornerstones of my career is using technology. What specifically? Is it Pro Tools or Reason or what's your platform? Yes. I'm a PC user and I use Steinberg Cubase Pro 8.5. I used to be a digital performer, but since switching to PC uh, probably like six years back or seven years back, I've uh, always used Cubase now. And basically what I use is a lot of sounds from other companies. Some of the big ones that I use is like East West Sound Online's Hollywood Orchestra. I use Spitfire Audio's BML range of products. I use the Berlin Orchestra by Orchestral Tools. I use stuff from 8DO. A new one that just came out is called Cinematic Studio Strings. It's phenomenal for the price. I mean, I think I probably own just about every library out there that's ever been created to do orchestral stuff. And I think that's usually what you end up getting into because one library will do nine out of 10 things well. That that other library just does those couple things that your other five libraries that you have can't do. And so I think you end up owning a lot of everything. And these sounds, they all load inside of Cubase within a plugin called Contact by Native Instruments. And so I use Contact inside of another program called VE Pro or Vienna Ensemble Pro by a company called VSL. And all it does is just host the sounds. I guess technically I have four machines here that I run samples from. Two machines with 128 gigabytes of RAM each. And then I have a third machine with 64 and a fourth machine with 32. And so I spread the samples across these four machines and I load, the, it's all SSDs and PCI, PCIe SSDs, so really fast hard drives, solid state disks that I stream the samples from because we're talking about terabytes of samples. And so Vienna Ensemble Pro pulls it all together from the various machines and puts it into Cubase for me. So I can send MIDI and audio across Ethernet on a local area network on LAN. So I don't have to have a bunch of wires and cables and interfaces. You know, you can just tuck your computers in a corner of your room or stack them on some shelves and load up the stuff and you're good to go. Is it basically when you're mixing it together, are you making an analog recording because you have actual audio cable or it's all just... I'm just, I'm wondering how digitally, if you're just bringing it digitally from the other machines to your central machine that you're doing the mix on, how that doesn't still add to processing power. Right. So all of the processing of the samples is being offloaded uh-huh. onto the other machines. And so my main PC, the master PC that has the DAW, really is just recording the incoming audio digitally. I am all digital. For the most part, I'm all in the box. But I do have some outboard gear that I do run basically my master through my stems. You know, I run it through a Portico 2 master bus processor and a Manly Massive Passive and a Brocasti M7, which are just kind of some high-end studio analog gear that really just offer unique colorations of the sound and high-quality reverb. But yeah, I'm basically all in the box. 
So my template, and I have a template set up, which is just every orchestral instrument that I think I'm going to use, I have it loaded up and configured and labeled in such a way that when I need to sit down and write a piece, I don't need to load up sounds. They're all ready loaded, ready to go. It's well over 800 MIDI tracks in Cubase. But at my fingertips, I have all the articulations I could ever need for strings from different kinds of fingered and slurred legato to five different kinds of shorter articulations from like a spiccato and a spiccatissimo and a staccato and repetitions and double bows and trills and runs. It just enables me when I feel inspired or feel driven to create that the technology doesn't interfere with the music which is is something that I see a lot of composers struggle with with technology. Instead of becoming a tool that they use, it becomes an obstacle that prevents them from being as creative as they want to be. Because clearly, the reason I thought that you must be using a real orchestra is because like some of the things that the strings are doing, it's not just a matter of, I've set up a sampled string part, so every time I hit a key, it plays a sample of a note. Because then you play a chord with that, and it it doesn't sound like actual strings. It sounds like string samples played on a keyboard. But it sounds like the variety of samples, you're not just saying play these notes, you're saying play, you know, a trill coming from here or, you know, what there are different patches for different articulations. Like how exactly string wise are we doing? Well, this is going to be more obvious on our third song, which is a more legato song. But I guess just as a general question, is it just that there's just a multiplicity of, it sounds like there are multiplicity of patches within each orchestra sample group that you can choose among that it's you're not just choosing what notes to play where is that right (laughs) right yeah for example a library that i use frequently is called mural and the violin one section is 16 violins so you play a note on the keyboard and it's the sound the tone it's the vibrato it's the ambience of the room of 16 violins well that's fantastic if you want 16 violins That's great if you're writing a piece that requires that much power of a string section. Well, what if you need to do a a triad? What if you just need to spell a minor third with this violin one section? When you play those two notes together, you're getting the tone, you're getting the ambience, you're getting the vibrato of 32 players. And so you can compensate for that by turning the volume down. However, it doesn't always balance well. And so a lot of these libraries, they do have the VC sections, or in the case of Mural, the company Spitfire Audio offers a smaller ensemble that is for violins. So when you need to start doing things that are triads, or start doing even seventh chords or four note chords or whatever, I reach for something like Sable. That way, it's more authentic to the way you would have a string ensemble do the VC And again, a lot of the decisions I make are based in traditional and acoustic orchestration. I don't make decisions just based on nothing. However, when I'm working electronically, the sound really is what dictates what I do and how I do it. And so sometimes I will play a triad with the whole string ensemble will be playing triads. That It's the sound of like 150 string players. But if it sounds good, I keep it. And there's a lot of times where I'll have violas play really just out of the range of what they would normally play something Mm -hmm. just to get a specific effect that I think if I sat that music in front of 
different players, the same effect would not be achieved. They would just say, why are you making me play that high? Exactly. They'd <laughs> say, why don't you give this to the violins? And that's happened to me in real life, especially with woodwinds. That digitally, your woodwinds can just be as agile as you could possibly want. And so I use a breath controller now so that when I run out of air, I know the woodwind players are probably going to run out of air too. And that helps regulate my writing and my expectations for how much I think a woodwind player should be able to breathe or lack thereof. Do you use that to introduce dynamical subtleties in the string parts as well? That you know. Oh, yeah. Okay, so you use that all, the, all over the place to determine when things get loud and soft. And you made reference to the string sometimes sounding like a keyboard, and that you get that effect. It's called the organ effect, where it is like an organ, because you're just playing a chord, and the attacks for all those notes are identical. The tuning is the same, because they've stretched those notes over multiple keys. Everything about the sound is homogenous on a keyboard, whereas with samples, they're much better just in terms of having the recordings the way that they're usually recorded, but also it's my job to insert realism and authenticity into the sounds. And so I'm not working with live string players or live woodwind players, but I am playing it in live. And so in a sense, it is still performed. And some of those nuances of timing and subtleties of tuning, like I will detune some of the sounds as I'm playing like a horn line, the same way that horn players might actually gently slide into a pitch differently than the way samples would function out of the box. Because not everything should be in tune and perfect in time and 100% perfect, because that's not even the way real players would play it. So We should get the second song out there on the table, Mega Adventure Time, as an example where maybe some of the parts are using your breath blowing, but because this is supposed to sound electronic-y, and even in, mixes in 8-bit sounding, I don't know if they're actually 8-bit, but 8-bit sounding some of the parts underneath, even though you've got some lush strings on top. Do you want to give any introductory remarks before we play this one? Yeah, so this is from a virtual reality game. It's a game that's developed by Turbo Button, and it's called Adventure Time Magic Man's Head Games. And it's for Gear VR, and I was a co-composer of the score for this. There was another composer on it who wrote some of the music for the other levels, and this was simply my contribution to the project. And so they requested something that felt adventurous, and so that is why I used the orchestra. They asked for something that felt medieval, and thus that's why there's some of like the recorder elements in it. And then they asked for it to feel like it could come from Adventure Time, which is kind of quirky. It has a bit of cheese to the score, for the TV show. And mm-hmm. so this track was composed about a year ago by me and a colleague of mine by the name of Colin Betts.
All right, so super busy musical texture, and I counted one, two, three, four, five, six sections that all fit almost exactly into that same two minutes before it then repeats. The second half, is the second half exactly just cut and pasted the same as the first half, or did you tweak some things? You're very keen. Yes, you've listened well. Actually, there is a lot going on, and that's because the music was created to be layered. And so the piece actually has three different musical layers that can play in any formation or combination throughout these levels. So the music is only two minutes long, but the level is much longer than that. And so in in games, often one way to kind of make the music feel like it has some life and feels like it's interactive and immersive to the game will make layers of a piece of music. So this one has like the orchestral layer with some of the medieval elements, and then it has like a quirky layer, and then it has like a rhythm layer. Like the rhythm layer, when the piece is looped, you know, three or four or five times, all the other stuff except for the rhythm layer, which is just kind of some of the retro, lo-fi, 8-bit instruments kind of playing along with the really subtle percussion loops that you can hear in the piece. And so it's also modular. There's three sections to it, and those sections can actually loop onto each other and can be spliced up and, and looped around. So if you wanted to go from A to C or A to B or B to C back to B to A, you could do that. And so the piece is modular and it is also layered so it can be dynamically mixed. All right, so my division into seven chunks is dividing more than you had in mind. So you've got the main, your major key thing at the beginning that establishes we got this harmonized, very prominent melody, which makes it not immediately obvious how much other stuff is going on underneath that. And then it swoops up, you got this sort of glissando to a, where the African flute part comes in. I guess that, that's what you're calling the medieval, the recorder. the nice high choir and the 8-bit stuff seems to get a little more active and into the treble range, whereas in the first part it stayed lower. In fact, I wrote Jurassic Park feeling is what I felt with this, where the flute part gets introduced. Are those still, those two parts, those are still all the A section? Yeah, and I think it could be modularized even more. Like, I think those parts could even be broken down. It probably could be broken into seven or eight different parts or six parts with a bridge, but that often just requires more implementation and so it, sometimes it gets to be a point where it's like, well, I could have 10 layers if I wanted to, but you start to lose your mind. <laughs> Thinking of all of the possible combinations of how you could set everything up. The section after that, it seems like it's based around low reeds. You've got bassoon and bass clarinet and big kettle drum stuff. Those parts of the orchestra always suggest something, especially quirky, mm-hmm. the humor is going on. So you've really got a, a pretty rapid change between these different textures. And then I have the D section is the sneaky section. <laughs> I don't know what exactly in the melodic run connotes. It's the mystery time. It's the <laughs> That's a part of the music that they would trigger or loop or bring out when they were in a cave. <laughs> okay. Right? So it feels kind of like a cave, how it's echoey and how it's just kind of sparse. A little bit creepy, a little bit unusual. The whole piece is just a little funny. It's a little off, but that fits the vibe of Adventure Time. 
All right. So I guess the sneaky section is probably the same section as what I wrote as the growing Morse code section, where it, the sneaky part goes into the da 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 And it repeats that a bunch of times. You're not exactly sure when that's going to end. And then it gets into the full on, I guess this is section three is my, what I called F and G, where you've got the full, this could be the soundtrack to ET or something where it really gets the choir and then the, but at the same time, you've got this counterpoint where you've established, but then you have the eight bit stuff kind of answering it or, a, or a cheesy organ. going back and forth between these two things. So it's a really interesting flavor to this. How did you put these layers together? Did you do sort of one chunk at a time? How did you and Colin cooperate on this? Was it somebody laying down a layer and then like somebody else going, oh, you know, let's move this and add this? How do these things work? I started with the first part of the piece before the cave part and basically just started with the melody and started with the very quirky rhythmic parts. That was kind of my primary focus initially, was to just get the bed, Mm -hmm. the bed of sound. At that time, I don't think we had decided that the piece was going to be layered and modular. And so I wrote the first part and the last part. And really, the last part is just kind of like a growing version. It's I don't want to say recapitulation because it's not that intelligent, but it's a restatement of kind of those initial ideas. I believe their initial feedback was like, well, this is good, but I feel like there could be something in the middle. And so I tried a couple of different things and they were like, oh yeah, this is good. This is good, but let's just try something else. And so Colin was with me in my studio at the time. He was like, well, let me just play down something. And I don't remember what it was that he, that he put down. It might've only been like eight bars of music, but it kind of sparked the direction for that middle section. And I don't know if much of what he wrote it ended up in the final piece, but it was something that he had done with a sound in that middle section mm-hmm. that made me kind of explore that direction and orchestrate it and add the different parts to it. And they loved that direction that the piece kind of just got flipped on its head in that middle part. And yeah, they, they really liked that. Yeah, it seems with your complicated setup with all the computers wired together that well, unless somebody is going to come and use your equipment to add notes here and there that actually collaborating on the nitty gritty of an arrangement in that way, at least using those range of instruments, I understand somebody else can come in and put on a guitar or something, and that's a different type of collaboration, but the, uh, would be difficult, but I could see, I mean, you write so much music, <laughs> just looking at your seven years back of your SoundCloud page here. I mean, do you find yourself with the melodies repeating yourself or having to, look around and what steal from different places to, to just come up with enough stuff. I mean, I know a number of your things, they don't even seem shaped around melody. They seem shaped around their, you know, they're explicitly called like boss room fight or something or dark adventure or, you know, where it's not so much like our first tune that you're coming away, humming the melody. It's more just, we need something with this mood in here. Is that the solution to not getting hung up on coming up with new melodies? Like if I had to come up with a fresh song, you know, given that I write songs with lyrics and things, if I wrote as many of them as you, like they would be completely repetitive of each other. (laughs) Not that there aren't a lot of musicians that do that and are fine with that, but. I think you kind of nailed it on the head. If somebody said, are you a melodic composer? I would say not really. I think I am more of a groove-based harmonic 
composer who's more interested in harmonics and textures and tones and the juxtaposition of that against rhythm and the complexity and the simplicity of arranging that. And so I do often start with melodies, but I've always just been incredibly interested in harmony and reharmonizing. And so I think naturally a lot of my melodies tend to be shorter and they tend to be very short motifs, mm-hmm. you know, like a light motif versus something that like John Williams would do, which would be a melody that's 30 seconds long. I have done those, but I hear and see things in smaller pieces. And that's always been the kind of composer that I've been. Even going back to being 11 years old, I always started with smaller cells of notes and would kind of grow pieces from there. And I think that that works really good for video game soundtracks. It works great for songwriting and jingles, and it works great for documentaries. It works great for trail, you know, it really works great for nearly all styles of multimedia composition. It maybe isn't as good for the concert hall in the sense that people tend to want stuff that's more, if it's going to be traditional, they want stuff that's more developed and thought out. Do I struggle with melodies? Sometimes. But my composing is usually more instinctual mm-hmm. than what it is, you know, really deep. And some people make it a very deep and intimate process and very arduous and really tedious process. And for me, I just sit down and go, you know, I just am instinctual. And I think my music reacts a lot to how the music is being written. So I think I'm a very reactive composer and maybe instead of a proactive composer, I don't always know this is the melody that's going to be used throughout the whole piece. Sometimes I just know it's a boss. I'm going to start with some big drums. And oftentimes I will tell myself, this is what's going to happen. And I stick to it. It's going to be big drums. It's going to start off with heavy brass. You know, after six or eight bars, I'm going to introduce a string motif. Then I'm going to slowly introduce the brass. I'm going to have something that builds. And at a certain point, I'm going to modulate. And that's when I'm going to take the focus away from the strings and have the brass do something that's more rhythmic. You know, and I think that way, instead of thinking like, oh, here's my melody. Now, how do I make that work over 32 bars? You know, I think the other way, which is I think of what is supporting the melody. And I think that that makes my music a bit different in the sense that we are so focused on melodic composing as orchestral composers. Whereas if you're a pop musician or you're playing music in a band or a songwriter, you're going to think a lot about the groove and the hook, but they're not doing as much orchestral stuff. So I think I really come from that realm of being more like a a pop musician or somebody that writes riffs and hooks and grooves. And I kind of translate that to an orchestral set. I'm trying to get at how you got to be doing this. I can kind of see two roots for somebody to be doing the kind of thing you're doing now. One of which is going to composition school, which I actually sort of did. I was a minor in composition, but I was doing that in the early nineties such that like I took an electronic, a couple of electronic music courses, but the software was pretty primitive and like it wasn't a good enough tool for me to bother to try to use. And so most of the things I actually did for composition class were a matter of sitting at a piano with sheet music in front of me that I would write on with a pencil 
And that was very limiting just in terms of, you know, given that I'm not a good pianist in the first place, getting the instant feedback. Like you want to be a reactive composer. You want to just lay something down and then like, we'll try some different stuff over it. And if you've got technology, you know, multi-track, the kind of thing that we have now, then that seems a lot easier to do to kind of flesh out an arrangement that way rather than having to do it kind of more in your head or not even really know what it's going to sound like until you get the music in front of actual players, you know, the four or five people that are going to play it. But then there are electronic composers today that start using Reason or something or Acid Loops or, you know, something that that it's almost like writing music in Microsoft Word, where you're kind of just not even writing out notes, you're moving little blobs. So you've got, here's the one measure and I can kind of just paint how the melody is going to look or how, where the drum hits are going to come in and tweak things that way. And so somebody that didn't have any musical training at all can get into this. And if they do it enough, as much as you've done, then they'll get really good at that. And I, so which route among those two extremes? Tell us about your journey here. Right. Yeah. So I've never written a piece of music by hand that's been performed. Mm hmm. I've used Sibelius and I've used Finale, but I, you know, I never did anything with a pencil and paper ever. If I die 80 years from now and people are digging through my drawers, they're never going to find a piece of music where it's a hidden gem or something. They're going to have to dig through old hard drives to find <laughs> terrible Sibelius files. And I even hated that. I even disliked doing that. I have never been a fan of traditional notation because I've found that I got into this when the techno digital music was kind of exploding. I always thought, why do I want to do it with pencil and paper when I can do the same thing 10 times as quick? Why do I want to use Sibelius when I can make something that sounds better that's going to be five times as quick? And if I had access to live players, I probably would have done more with Sibelius. But my college degree, it was just not, it was encouraged. But they were very supportive of people that wanted to learn alternative forms of composition. And I knew from the very beginning that I wanted to do multimedia composing. Mm -hmm. I wasn't sure if that meant games or films or what, anything. I loved the technology. And without the technology, I wouldn't be a composer. You know, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing right now if it were not for the technology. I wouldn't have even finished the degree. But they saw that I loved the technology. They encouraged it. They supported it. And when I had my assignments to turn in, they let me do it with this non-traditional, for a conservatory of music, a non-traditional form of, of notation. So were you the exception in the program that other people were sort of doing more traditional? Yes. Pull in three players for their recital part and you would just play that recording? Absolutely. They did make me do some live stuff with live players, and, and I always cherished that. But the thing was, is like if I wanted to do a full-blown orchestral piece, I didn't have those players. I couldn't do it. And so they allowed me to do that stuff, and I think it was good that they did. Because that industry, the interest in doing that at an academic level has exploded. You know, there's you look at these music schools now... And, that, you know, there might have been a handful of people interested in traditional print-formed composing concert hall kind of stuff, concert works. And that number has significantly dropped. It has been overtaken by people that want to build careers based on the use of technology and tools. And I understand why. Because it makes it more enjoyable for a lot of people. It 
helps people that may not be able to is easily grasp all of the different skills that are required to do something more traditional and allows them to do something they're more comfortable with. In my case, I have terrible handwriting. I never like to write anything. I remember being like eight, nine years old and I would want to type, I would rather type a science fair project up than write it by hand. And so I'm a learner by ear from music, from tutorials of doing anything, from putting a computer together to learning how to cook or whatever. I've always preferred audio and even visual over traditional like text based learning. And so I was just in it at the right time and they let me do what I wanted to do because I was producing stuff just fine and they provided critique and feedback and I graduated and honestly, I might have only notated a dozen pieces. So it sounds like, I mean, you were doing this far before you went to school for that. You were producing these electronic pieces and then have been, what, have you been out for how many years? I graduated in 2007. I'm 31 years old. Yep. Okay. So I imagine, yeah, the leaps in technology even since then, that for school projects, you couldn't pull out the uh, Hollywood orchestra and make something that's going to sound like that at that point. And probably working on only one computer. Oh, yeah. Back then, I had two gigabytes of RAM, and that was just unheard of. In my degree and on my floor in the dorm, that was just unbelievable. Oh, two gigs of RAM. Yeah. Well, we should get our third song on the table here, Celestial Light from the Stellar Wanderer game, Crescent Moon Games. What This is within the last year still that you wrote this? Is that right? Yes. Yep. I almost wanted to play this first just because it seems like the most serious piece, whereas maybe... Beyond the desert, we put a blue note to make it sound Eastern in our melody. Like it definitely more sounds like something you did on commission, but where Celestial Light here, this could just be in an M. Night Shyamalan movie. It could be one of those David Newman's, or am I getting the names right? I don't know. This sounds pretty highbrow to me. And I found this the hardest one to, to think about how you did this in a computer program because there's no obvious pulse that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You've got definite changes in tempo here. Well, let's, uh, do you want to say some introductory remarks and then we'll let them hear it before we talk more? No.
All right. So that is beautiful. And again, I didn't really figure this out until I sat down and tried to look at it section by section. But at two minutes and 12 seconds, <laughs> it goes back and repeats the whole thing again. And again, I guess I'll ask the same question. Is it actually just copying and pasting the first half to the second half? You identified the loop point of the piece. <laughs> That's pretty common, I guess. Mm-hmm. For or, well, I do it a lot for these pieces like this that don't have the original piece in game was that two minutes and whatever odd seconds. But when I put them online, I tend to loop them, especially pieces like this that don't have that pulse and that don't clearly feel like it has a starting point or an ending point. And pieces like these, you, you could start the piece, you know, 40 seconds in and loop it and you're going to get lost in the piece. And that really is the intent of this piece. Just get lost in it. I don't want people to be able to sense any rhythm to it or any form of structure or any form of phrasing. And so there's times where it's like, is that a four bar phrase, a five bar phrase, a six bar phrase? Who knows? I don't even know. Are you using a tempo track in Cubase at all? Or you just, just ignore that. It's just still says probably 120 or whatever the default is. Mm -hmm. And you just are not paying attention to where the measures are. According to Cubase, I should say. Yes, yes, I do. But then okay. I kind of throw that all, I throw it all out the window. It's a good observation that it feels like there's a structure to it, but it doesn't feel like it has a pulse. And so a piece like this, again, I'm thinking more about pads and textures. Mm-hmm. And so I start the piece with appropriate tones and textures and pads. And then I introduce a melody that I'm disregarding the phrasing with the melody at this point, right? Like I might have it start the melody on a pickup note, but if it goes three bars or four bars or six bars, it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter how long the melody goes. And then I tend to interweave multiples of these short melodies or sometimes longer melodies on top of each other. And what I will do is sometimes it's a sequential modulation, like repeating it, but in a in a different key or in a different inversion where the ending note then suggests a different modality. So basically I'm creating the bed for the melody to sit on. And then I will juxtapose a different melody that incorporates with that original one. And then I adjust the harmony based on the reaction of the sound of the second melody. And that kind of just continues and continues and continues. And this is done to a tempo track. But then what I'll do is I will, and I do this with a lot of my pieces, even nuancing the end of a phrase that you adjust the, you know, BPM from uh, 120 down to like 108, you know, slowly to Mm -hmm. 118, just at the end of a phrase, then back up to 121 makes it feel a little more lively. And a piece like this, I really think this piece, I might've just taken the pencil and Cubase and going, woo, and just done a bunch of silly, like, waves up and down, just randomly. Right. As long as you don't have to, you know, have a, a quantized percussion thing going on in there, that's fine. It's not, it's not going to throw you off. And for pieces like this, and I think I get a lot of comments about my ambient music, about how free-flowing it feels and how it feels like it's not tied to anything. And that's because it's not. I can stretch these parts out two and three times more or whatever, I could do really crazy things with the tempo and it still is going to sound just as floaty and cohesive or even lack thereof is what it does now. 
because the ideas are not, they're not aligned vertically. It's not a vertical composition. It's composed very horizontally in the sense that it's not blocks up and down like you would stack, you know, six Lego blocks on top of each other. This is like staggering Lego blocks so that they're random stair steps. Sure. So you're not thinking about chords. You're thinking about lines. Okay. Exactly. And sometimes I will think of chords. I'll think of a triad. I'll think of a tonality. And then I'll play a melody on top of it that just directly goes against that. And then I use that, that accident, you know, that might be seen as you hit a wrong note or there's an improper tone. I will use that as like a launching point for the rest of the harmony. And so I think in a piece like this, I'm not thinking of keys or tonalities. I'm thinking of pitch centricity. Yeah. So you start out with this drone. That's really what you, you've got a D and an A going, which is not a whole chord. <laughs> and then just base everything based on that. It has this feel like it's breathing because you've got this low French horn thing that is kind of going from dun, dun, that goes up to the C and then back to the A. But then, you know, it only kind of does that once and stops. And then when it comes back in, it just sits on the A while there's a trumpet melody over it. And when it comes back on the breathing thing, it's not in the same spot. You know, it does the going up to the C right at the first part of the melody rather than before the melody comes in. And then you've got a few of these things these little twinkle sound, you know, you've, once you've established the main melody, which again, the melody, like you were saying, they're little, it's basically like a four note thing. Like you've just got these little gestures at melodies. It's not a whole singable, but then it establishes itself enough that it can get answered by this little, is a xylophone? Like, this is what I'm wondering about when you use 90% orchestra sounds, but then you need to bring in something like this little twinkle. Like, is that the xylophone in the orchestra, the same patch? Or are you actually thinking about bringing in something that's from a different sonic palette? And that sound, I believe, is from Omnisphere. And it does use like um, a celeste or a piano. Okay. It's like the source material. But it is specifically designed to be kind of a celestial sound, to be spacey and ethereal. That might have been one of the first sounds that I picked for this piece. That might have been the genesis of this piece was that specific sound and how tinkly and ethereal and celestial it is. It made me feel a certain way and that's how the music ended up. Yeah, with both this and Beyond the Desert, you also have these voice samples, you know, choir in the case of that, I I guess it was more low male singers. In this one, you've got the definite soprano. Do people design an orchestra palette that includes strings and voices or do you kind of have to just figure out which voices from this other package sound good with these strings it's a little bit of both there's lots of great ones out there that are sold separately from from these packages that do phenomenal things and there's some that are sold as part of bigger collections that are great too and a lot of it just depends on if you want verity style choirs that are singing about the end of the world or you want something that's angelic and sweet and ethereal you kind of just have to cherry pick what you know the strengths of the instruments are and so every virtual instrument in a sense is its own instrument Mm -hmm. because it has its own things that you have to learn that you have to become familiar and comfortable with or you will not be able to perform it because that's what i'm doing performing And that's why the music sounds so organic. I'm not programming. 
Like, I'm not punching in things with a mouse. I'm playing everything in live. And so I have to know the instrument, how it works, how it reacts to my playing, and how I can play to make it do what I, I want it to do. That, and, that is, um, you're using the breath thing while holding a key down, or do you have an actual yes. pitch sensing? Has that been one of the things? This is something that I've long wanted to add to my toolkit, because I write almost everything just through melodies in my head and I'm not a good keyboardist and I kind of have to figure out a little bit like how to translate this thing to <laughs> what's going on in my fingers. But if I could just basically like use like a kazoo <laughs> or, you know, a MIDI pitch capture thing, like that would make things so much faster for me. Do you have any of that on the board or no? It's always just you're a good enough keyboardist. You're comfortable enough. I'm a capable enough keyboard player. The breath controller just transmits MIDI data. Uh huh. But it is a Hornberg HB1 breath controller, so it has a lot of kind of neat features on it. And I use a Novation SLMK2 keyboard controller, which has all of the auto map sliders on it. And I have an expression pedal that I use, and I have a, a sustain pedal. And so I'm usually playing stuff with my right hand, and I'm blowing with my mouth, and I'm running both of my feet, and then I'm using my left hand to adjust the sliders all in real time. And so it's not unusual sometimes for me to be sending multiple streams of MIDI data to a track at the same time as I'm performing it in. I think if you are not a good keyboard player, are you a guitar player or a bass player? Yeah, both of those. But bass was my first instrument. And they do have MIDI pickups that Mm -hmm. you can use for like a guitar. And I, I know guys that do that that seem to work well enough. But it's an extra, yeah. Who wants to have a big thing in your lap like that? <laughs> You're only playing one note at a time pretty much on keyboard or, you know, a triad, right? You're not doing fancy two-handed piano parts. Correct. Unless I'm playing playing a piano part. Okay. <laughs> yeah. was, was that your background? Can you do fancy two-handed piano parts? Barely. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I'm a church musician is my background. I guess how I sharpen my skills. Like playing... Organ in a church or choir in a church? Like what? Piano. Oh, piano. Like piano. Okay. And, okay. Uh, you know, I do play a little organ now. I'm a terrible organist, but if the church needs somebody to play organ, that's. I step up because there's no not many other people that can do it. So. You are a real keyboardist then, but I know there are lots of successful electronic musicians that, you know, you only have to do one hand at a time and uh, it's just not that much of a requirement. Yeah, people ask me what my primary instrument is, and I say either keyboard or synthesizer, Mm -hmm. usually, because it's pianist, especially around here. If you say you're a pianist, they'll be like, oh, play some Chopin, play some Mozart, play a fugue or what, you know, whatever. And it's like, well, no, but, you know, I can play some Journey. You know, if you want to hear some Van Halen, I got that under my fingers. So I guess we haven't talked much about pitch here, I guess. So to what extent did studying music theory and things in composition school drive do you think in terms if you're doing the beyond the desert and putting in a flatted fifth here and there is what makes what it gives it its Eastern flavor in the main riff? Mm-hmm. Like, are you thinking, is it just intuitive such that you're playing something and this sounds cool and that's the, or are you thinking in terms of music theory? Oh, here I'm doing a mixolinian scale here. No, not at all. Okay. And you know, I, I was doing augmented six chords when I was 14 years old. I just didn't know that that's what it was called. I was using Neapolitan chords when I was that age. 
And, you know, it's like you don't know what it is. It's almost easier to do complicated stuff when you don't know what it is. Like, it's just absolutely the piano keyboard looks cool. And so like play these clusters together and then write them down. And then afterward, try to figure out, is that a chord at all? Like, what what is that? Oh, it's a sharp 11th. It's got. OK. All right. I've always thought that keys, like having keys, mm-hmm. to me, that's always been unusual for composing. I understand it for playing or performing. But for, in terms of composing, say, oh, this key's in B flat, that always just felt limiting to me. And so even when I was younger, I would always think of pieces as not being in a specific key. And I think that that really didn't hamper my ability when I had started off in college to think of, well, this doesn't fit in the mode or this isn't diatonic. I didn't really care because if you're talking about, you know, E minor, they're, oh, it's relative majors G and there's one sharp in it. And I'm thinking to myself, mm, that's true. Yeah, but there's all these other the chords that can play into it and all these other accidentals that can be used. And so, I, you know, I think that the older I get, the more I realize that I just have always been more focused on, you know, not worrying about modulations and how things make sense musically, but more focused on the visuals, actually looking at the keyboard and seeing that like keys are are closely related or chords are distant. And if I'm doing some kind of a tritone substitution or whatever in a piece, that that launches me further away that I can start to do either direct modulations or I can do common tone modulations and get from point A to point B easily. And I always challenged myself where I would write out chords to a piece with the time signatures and orchestration or arrangements before I would even write the piece. Hmm. And so there is a piece on my SoundCloud that's called Crazy Afternoon, that that's what that piece is. I literally, without, in that piece I did write down with pencil and paper. I just wrote down the measure numbers and the key that it was going to be in and the primary focus of the orchestration and the time signature. And it really was a study on transitions and how to get from point A to point B, and how to modulate using common tones. And you really can get from one chord to the other. If they're really distant chords, you can still do it if you prepare the transition appropriately with your arranging. You really enforce that new tonality. You lead up to it, you build to it, and you get away from it after you make the transition. And music has always felt most comfortable to me that way. And I've always felt like music theory was good to learn, but it was more of a roadblock for me, not because I'm above it or not because I don't need it or I'm so good that it doesn't help me. It absolutely helped me because it helped me understand why other people do what they do. And it helped me to learn more. But for me, I just couldn't ever and I would often get lower scores on, on assignments, writing assignments, because I would do things that weren't diatonic. And I thought to myself, well, why does that, what I'm doing works musically. I've heard Mozart do it, and I've heard Beethoven do it, and I've heard Debussy do it, but I can't do it because you need to make sure that I understand how chords work diatonically. But it's just one of those things <laughs> that I've, I've never been... I'm not, you know, really into traditional education as much either. And I think it all kind of stems from that, that I'm a fan of apprentice-based learning. Close listening and just, it sounds like doing a lot of composing, just trying these exercises out and uh, 
So I, the way we see it in Celestial Light is you have these, even though it's mostly based upon this tonal center, not a full chord, but there's a couple sections I had labeled the, toward the end of it, you know, you got a full minute in where you kind of go to a different chord sequence for a little bit. And I, you know, I kind of, I played it along on bass. So I have, all right, well, if it starts in D, then it goes to B flat and F and G, but I'm not, you know, those are just some of the notes that are played and then kind of gets back to the main thing. And then right at the end of it, you've got another section like that, that goes to, I don't know, B flat, B natural, some kind of other shifting around. But it sounds like these are things that you more stumble across and then kind of remember how you did it. So you're familiar with a rich variety of tonal progressions as opposed to having the theory behind it. Yeah, I would say more than anything, it's a combination of experimentation, improvisation, and learning how to make something that would otherwise sound like a mess sound palatable. And were you thinking, like, with this song with Celestial Light, in terms of Debussy or particular movie soundtrack influences or anything in particular? Or is it all no. just amalgamated so you don't even know where it <laughs> comes from at this point? It is very amalgamated. And I think if I were to listen back to the piece, I'm not even sure I could tell you from where the point goes. I was thinking, it made me look up Aaron Copeland's fanfare for the common man for the first time in a long time. And then I, okay, it's actually not that harmonically similar, but it just that overall feel of the horn on the hill, you know, playing out over the silence, you know, it's just reveille. It's not specific to a particular piece or the initial progression. It made me think of like the Superman theme song. I don't know, just these things. How much of this is coming from, you seem so good at, at connoting these things that are very familiar to us from movie soundtracks as opposed to, but I don't know if that's just because because it's been so long. I was in orchestra in high school and have more or less ignored the classical world since then, with a few exceptions. You know, it's been a very minor part of my listening. So I don't know if if the fact that these things can own movie soundtrack stuff are because of my personal proclivities, or that's just the way things have progressed. That movie soundtracks now use these things that the classical medium built up, but in a sort of much more I don't know, immediate gratification way. If you just sort of compare John Williams to to Haydn or to Beethoven or something, there's a definite transition in you're trying to push people's buttons more than expand tonality, you know, whatever the Mahler or Tchaikovsky thought they were doing, expanding on the previous generations. Right. And Well, they didn't have to compete with explosions and gunshot sounds with their music either. <laughs> right? I mean, that that really is a big part of it. It's like this this celestial piece, it is like my primary job as a composer and you know i think a lot of the people that educated me would say oh no you're you're more than that you're more than that is my primary goal is to entertain people with the music with the project that it's in and to to make the client happy and so i think that this piece was designed specifically to accomplish one goal for them which was for it to be an ambient piece of light-sounding space music. So it doesn't indicate that there's any danger or anything beyond just being floating. And for me, I knew, and this is one of the only things I can recollect about this piece just perfectly, 
is that I knew I wanted the piece to just float and feel completely disconnected from, from even itself, where the piece would just could go from A to B and not feel like it's referencing itself or building upon itself. And it worked as, as a great piece of music in the game because it was set out to do those two things and I it did them well. And it's definitely not a high technical achievement of musicality, but I think because of its application, it is a successful piece that, that I actually do a lot of music very similar to this, that you could call it ambient, but I think it goes a bit beyond just being ambient because it's very free form, but it still has structure, just not a structure that is easily recognizable. And it does have a shape to it and it does have form, but not in the sense that it's driven by a melody. It's more driven by very basic goals that it's trying to achieve. And I have a lot of other music that I think is kind of like that, where I'll have a piece where it's like, I'll do a whole piece of music, but all I'm trying to do is achieve one thing with that piece. Whether it's really expending a melody or a motif that I've created, or if I just want to do some kind of weird string progression or some kind of a rhythmic pattern. You know, sometimes I will focus an entire piece around a very small aspect of, of a composition and not just what's traditionally done, which is focusing an entire piece around the melody and your harmony is focused around the melody and it's focused around the form and the structure of the piece. Kind of like this very grand top-down view and what I like to do is start small pieces and build. Well, have there been any pieces that you, you know, you write your two minutes and you feel like, no, the internal logic of this means that I have to keep pushing and build it into a, you know, a seven minute movement or whatever. Have there been any like that? Or you're just too busy to think like that. Oh yeah. There is all the time. <laughs> There's lots of times where I think, well, this 30 second piece, and I, you know, I've done a lot of that kind of stuff for Disney projects, you know, yeah. 30 second pieces that I would love for them to be longer. But for me, I'm also someone that I write it and I do it to the best of my ability to the point where I am happy, which I think is above the standard of a lot of clients. It is above the standard of clients because they're happy with it. And it's above the standard of listeners. And I'm very anal about my work. And in the past, I've had the tendency to beat myself up over stuff that's not perfected. And I've realized in the last really seven years that I just need to let go and write the stuff. I'm going to make it as awesome as I can. And then I just need to put it down and move on because there's more ideas. There's better ideas. And I just need to discover those and take what I've learned from other pieces and put it into new works and not continually try to struggle over why, you know, I'm not a John Williams and why I'm not a Beethoven or Mahler or whatever, and find what I do best simply by writing my way through it and not thinking my way through it, because that's what I would tend to do, is think about what I've done, think about how I can change it, think about what I should have done better, what was done well, and instead I say, forget it, I'm just going to write my way through it. You can't just rewrite a different version because you've already sold it to somebody, right? You can't do a slightly different yeah. <laughs> expanded version. Or, I mean, is there would there be any point, given that you're successfully 
I found a, a niche for companies to buy your music to release something like a traditional album that has, you know, I guess it would have to have a little more fleshed out versions in some of these two minute ones. I mean, maybe just doing like you post them on, on the SoundCloud site where you repeat. I mean, that's what the classical composers did. <laughs> they didn't cut and paste, but they just said repeat at the end. So it should be good enough for you too. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I actually have four albums. Oh, okay. I did not look you up on Spotify. I was just looking no. at your, uh, at your SoundCloud. They've not been released. They're actually, I work for a company in California by the name of Neoglyphic Entertainment. And to really sum up a lot of what's being done, it requires me to generate large amounts of music. I'm talking about 10 hours of music a year. I wrote probably upwards of 10 hours of music for them last year. Wow. And so some of what's being done is to take this music and to put it into albums. And the music is... There's a couple albums that are designed for people's listening pleasure. And then some of the albums are going to be designed to be music that can be usable by people creating their own content. So some of it is set to really take that motif and take that idea and develop it and break it down and energize it. And then some of the other music is like, here's a piece that sets out to do X, Y, and Z. It does it for three minutes. It does it for four minutes. It does it really well. And you can buy this piece to use it in, in your project. I've been wrapping that work up this week on these albums. And so in the near future, there will be four of them with a fifth one starting here soon in the wild of longer forms. Each album is 60 plus minutes. I just looked you up on Spotify here and there are at least someone named Sean Beeson has three albums. Songs yeah. of Serenity, Relaxation, Ivory Dreams... And then a video game, dangerous video game soundtrack. So those are all Ivory Dreams is 2004. So that, that's kind of before you got going on most of your video game stuff, right? Yeah. And Ivory Dreams is actually some of my, it's some new compositions and some of my older ones from when I was in high school that were put onto this album. And it's actually, Ivory Dreams is actually on YouTube and it's got, I don't know, probably like 65 million views now. Jeez. That's a whole nother thing. I do a lot of piano relaxation music. I've always done it. I've done a lot of like really ambient, long form piano music. Just like that really focuses on tone and dynamics and expressiveness with the piano. That I, I don't know if Ivory Dreams quite possesses all of that because I was a little younger at the time. But yeah, I've got a lot of what you could call relaxation music or some people use it for yoga or exercise or sleeping or studying. I surprisingly get more emails from parents that have children that are autistic, that they use this music to help their children relax. They just turn on this the music and it helps them. But that's a whole different... What the right hand is doing with game scores and orchestra, the left hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing. Um, so it's it's two completely different audiences and bases of listeners. Well, that might have been a great fourth song for us to leave people with is one of those. But instead, let's just introduce this thing, which shows off a different aspect. I mean, the composition style is similar to some of the things we've heard. But the fact that you're collaborating with people, this is Salve Regina featuring Friar Gabriel. So you've got a, a singer and then another singer. Is this your wife? It is my wife. Laura yeah. Beeson, your wife. Yes. And then another guy, Cole Jenkins, playing guitars on this. Do you want to just say a little bit about how you got working with the skateboarding Friar here and, and the story of that? 
Yeah, there's a company out of Chicago that goes by the name of Spirit Juice, and they're a company that produces Roman Catholic multimedia. And I'm Catholic myself, and so I've been involved with them quite heavily for years. And they just came to me and said, hey, we've got this recording of this guy singing Salve Regina, which is, it's a Latin prayer. He's like, do you think you can make it kind of like awesome? And might have said edgy. But that, you know, that's what I was thinking in my head. I'm going to make it awesome and edgy and maybe a bit gritty. Because here is this, you know, a chant that I want to make it into something that's a, a little more industrialized. So they just gave me his acapella vocals and I cut them up. And for those of you that are that are listening to the accuracy of the chant, it is no longer accurate. So the chant did not keep its form, its traditional Latin. Like it doesn't make sense if you're translating the Latin. But I cut it up and arranged the music around the acapella chanting. And using the sampler, so it goes, Sa-sa-sa-sa-sa-sa-sa-sa-sa-sa-sa-sa-sa-sa-sa-sa-sa-sa-sa-sa-sa-sa-sa-sa-sa-sa-sa-sa-sa-sa-sa-sa-sa-
If you look at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com at the blog post for this interview, I will link to Sean's soothing Ivory Dreams album and his very extensive SoundCloud page. I want to point out that I also got to sort of collaborate with Sean. He had written a disco dance video game song that we were thinking about covering here, and instead I offered to put some lyrics on it to go with a Partially Examined Life episode that just came out on August 1st. If you look for Partially Examined Life episode 144 part 3, listen at the end of that, you can hear Forgive the Disco, or look at my samples page at marklint.com. So I was on vacation, took me a while to post this, I'm going to get the next one with a hip-hop guy, Tyler Hislop, up just as quickly as I can to then move on to my Bill Bruford interview. And I've got one with a classical tuba player. And my most recent interview was with Peter Knight, the amazing violin player for Steel Eye Span. You should look him up or just look out for my interview. Thanks everybody so much for listening. Please help me promote this thing. Go check out the Facebook page for this podcast. Look at the posts on that page. Share one of those posts on your personal page. By all means, reach out to me if you want to be on the show or you have a connection with someone that you really think should be on the show, keep on musicking in whatever way you can. This is Mark Lintemeyer signing off. Mm-hmm.